0: T20 she ran a fossil store, she put the
1: bones together for the and science was the province of men of noble birth, but I take Mary and the over those All right, welcome back to Stem Fatal, your women in science history podcast. I'm one of your co-hosts, Dr. Emlyn Gremlin.
0: And I'm your other co-host, Dr. Emma Dilemma.
1: What's going on this week? What are we doing? Well, um,
0: um, my I guess I'll I'll start with my bad question, you know? I always, last minute, come up with a really, really stupid question, or I completely forget this week I actually remembered. (laughs) My question for you to lead into today's Lady of the Hour is... uh, (laughs) Emily, <laughs> this is so dumb.
1: What's your favorite emulsion? <laughs> My favorite emulsion. Uh huh. <laughs> so an emulsion's two things, two liquids that don't mix well together, like oil and water. Is that?
0: Yes, that is an emulsion, which I literally had to look up. <laughs> I'm so stupid. <laughs>
1: I I mean, there's a lot of things that I'm not sure <laughs> if they're emulsions, like a bunch of cocktails that like, I don't know mm. if those two things, like you shake them so that they mix, but I don't think those are quite emulsions.
0: It's possible they are. If they don't actually form a new liquid by mixing, it's an mm. emulsion, If one of the liquids is just dispersed throughout the other liquid evenly,
1: that's an emulsion. Okay. Well, my margaritas separate often, so I'm going to say a margarita. I don't know if that's an emulsion, (laughs) but my lime juice does not like Uh to mix evenly with my tequila. Yeah.
0: I mean, I had a pina colada last night, and I was like, this is probably an emulsion.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Did you make pina coladas? Yeah. I love it. Yeah, it, they're so good. I've been wanting to make a pina colada for a while. I it mean, just seems like so much work.
0: No, no. You don't have to. I mean, if you want to like make them blended, the ice blended, it can be a lot of work. But if you're just making, mm-hmm. you can just mix coconut, uh, what's it called? It's not coconut milk. Cream? But yeah, coconut cream, pineapple juice, and rum. You just got a simple pina colada.
1: Okay. i that might have to It's really good. I might need to make one of those it's after super, super this. good. Well yeah. it's eleven thirty AM, so maybe like quite yeah. after this.
0: Yeah, a few in a few hours.
1: <laughs> maybe when or I whenever. edit this podcast I'll Sunday I'll drink a Pina Colada.
0: Sunday fun day. <laughs> you know? Well, okay, yep. today <laughs> with that, um, today I'm gonna be telling you all about Marietta Blau. A, v- okay. a Viennese physicist who perfected photographic emulsions.
1: <laughs> I have no even idea what that would yeah. mean.
0: Well, we'll get into it. They're not technically emulsions, oh, I'm sure we will. they're no piña colada, but I had to look up not only what a normal emulsion is, but also a photographic emulsion just to. <laughs> <laughs> And we'll talk about it,
1: but um, okay, I'm excited. Yeah. I'm excited to learn what photographic emulsions are.
0: Yeah, okay. So, and and the story is pretty overall pretty interesting. Hopefully, not too long. But you know, let's see how this goes. <laughs> yes. All right. I'm excited. So, Marietta Blau was born on April 29th, 1894, into a middle-class Jewish family living in Vienna, Austria. Her father was a lawyer and a music publisher, and as was, Mm -hmm. you know, kind of usual for the time, her mother cared for their three children. And because her parents were both so entrenched in the music scene and society in Vienna, Marietta, too, would develop a love for music. And additionally, from a young age, Marietta was quite interested in math and physics, and she would go on to study those subjects in college when she started at the University of Vienna in 1914. Um, And she would complete a bachelor's and a doctorate in physics by 1919. (laughs) oh man yeah so i don't know much about her childhood but um but it just seems like she was always a good student and always kind of interested Mm in in math and physics which would be her specialties her
1: did we have somebody else who was from vienna was um hedy lamar from vienna or am i making Um, that up i
0: think she might have been hungarian but lise meitner was from vienna and okay. I know this because there are many, many parallels between Marietta's mm-hmm. life and story and Lee Minor's story.
1: Oh, boy. Okay. Yeah. I Which see is, where this was is going. Which is a pretty interesting based story. On the, mm-hmm. Based on the timeline. Right. Uh, yeah. Okay. Literally I'm same gearing time. Up. Yeah. Okay. Yep. So uh,
0: Marietta's PhD was about the absorption... Abs- absorption why can't i say the word absorption (laughs) it sounds good to me okay absorption of divergent gamma radiation and so she was interested in kind of uh like nuclear physics and radiology Mm -hmm. which were becoming a lot bigger in the world at that time in the early 1900s And during her childhood, in particular, Austria had become a pretty big center for radiation research, due in mm-hmm. part to the nearby uranium mines that were located just north of Austria um, in the what's now known as the Czech Republic. And gotcha. so, for example, the Radiation Institute in Austria was completed in 1910 when. Marietta was a child and was the first radiation institute in the world. So it really was kind of a leading country for Mm -hmm. radiation research at that time. So after graduating with her PhD, Marietta worked as a researcher in Germany, uh, first manufacturing x-ray tubes in Berlin and then teaching radiology techniques at the University of Frankfurt. Uh, During this time, she published two papers about how different wavelengths of light affect photographic emulsions <laughs> so the words are what this term is gonna come up a lot so I'm gonna like break it down okay. just a little bit um, because yeah. it was totally new to me and I had no idea before this anything about how photo photographs work like that's always oh. been a black box right so it's with
1: the with the dipping. The dippings, Yeah, right?
0: look, we're not even getting into the dipping. Like...
1: Okay, okay, <laughs> We're just okay. scratching the surface <laughs> here. Because it's
0: okay. complicated. Um, and I honest, It's kind of funny to me that people figured out how photographs work before I think even totally understanding the physics of it. Maybe they did, hmm. but it's still confusing to me. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so... In, so yeah, so in plain English, like we talked about at the top, a normal emulsion is just a mixture of two liquids that are not mixable. So one liquid is present as droplets evenly dispersed throughout the other liquid, uh, like oil and water. Yeah. And so a photographic emulsion, though not technically an emulsion emulsion is similar. Because it involves the suspension of insoluble, light-sensitive crystal particles throughout a liquid gel. Okay. So, I don't know why they call it an emulsion, because it's not one, but that's just kind of the term <laughs> the industry picked up. Okay. And it's the term I'm going to like a. Ma- it's
1: like a macchiato. It's like a caramel macchiato. Uh... It's like uh what else? I feel like it's, I mean in that like a macchiato a caramel macchiato is not a macchiato, they just call it that and it's confusing oh, to oh, everybody. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I would say if it's
0: like anything, it's like if you had jello and put sprinkles in it. Okay. Mm-hmm. So but in this case the sprinkles are silver halide crystals. <laughs>
1: That sounds less good.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So, like, silver bromide, just basically things that detect light or are light-sensitive. Mm-hmm. Um, so these crystals, so usually almost always silver halide crystals, are what are responsible for producing the image that you see that result from this type of photography, which I think there's now, like, way newer versions of photography. Mm Mm-hmm. Um... And so when these crystals are struck by radiation or light, they are altered such that they can eventually be developed by a photographer using those dips you were talking about in different liquids. Uh, they developed into a black metallic silver, which is actually the negative image that you see. Okay. And from there, don't ask me how they make the other image. Like okay, I, well. I just didn't even. It's it's beyond <laughs> what we need to know for, okay. for her work. <laughs> okay. So what Marietta was studying, um, during this her er, this early research phase, was essentially how different wavelengths of light would influence the production of photographic images. So how do different lights interact with these silver crystals? Um and and make different types of images. Okay. In 1923, her mother became ill, and so she returned to Vienna and began working at the Radium Institute. She was lucky to to be surrounded by other women scientists there and throughout Europe before World War II. Um, Actually, about one-third of the researchers at the Radium Institute in Vienna were women, Though none of them were paid. Is the
1: Radium Institute started by Marie Curie? So no. There are multiple okay. <laughs>
0: radium institutes. It's a good question. I had the same thought. But um
1: okay. It no. seemed early.
0: Yeah. Marie Curie started a radium institute in uh Poland. So okay. this is just a different radium institute.
1: Gotta get more creative names. Yeah. <laughs> Uh Okay, so
0: a lot of my story today I've to add at the top comes from an article by Ruth Syme um, called Marietta Blau, Pioneer Photographic Nuclear Emulsions and Particle Physics. And she says in this article that uh, that the reason why there's like... So yeah, I was saying a third of the researchers at the Radium Institute in Vienna at that time were women. Um which is pretty incredible for a scientific field in the 1920s. And Ruth Syme attributes this to Marie Curie, who had led the way Mm -hmm. and opened a lot of doors for women in radiology and physics before her death in 1937. So that was just a popular field for women who wanted to be scientists. Um, And although she wasn't paid... She was allowed to run her own (laughs) research institute, her research program at the institute, where she supervised a lot of doctoral students. Yeah. But um, she worked outside of the institute as a teacher and applied for grants to obtain funding. But she was denied access to full time, fully paid academic positions, likely because she was both Jewish and a woman in 1930s Austria. Mmm, great. Yeah. So her most ground I mean, checks out, but yeah, her most groundbreaking work was done at this institute where she continued her work on photographic emulsion, specifically focusing on how to use photos to detect charged particles, such as the high oh. yeah, such as the high energy protons that are emitted after a nuclear reaction. Oh, cool. Okay. Yeah. So this, honestly, this took me so long to understand. So I'm, <laughs> I'm going to try to describe it as best as I can. But even still okay. parts of it, I have a hard time, like, fully visualizing. But, um, okay. In recent years, research, researchers had discovered how to create nuclear reactions in the lab. And, like, radiology, of course, is this big field. Um, but they were having a hard time accurately recording the data on proton emissions after a nuclear reaction. So, this is like okay. mm-hmm. uh, a n- nucleus is hit by a bunch of energy and a proton will be emitted. But they're like, how many protons are emitted? How fast are those protons traveling away from the nucleus? Like, things like that. Mm-hmm. And so, though, res- Wait, like what,
1: they, how dispersed they are, maybe. Yeah,
0: exactly. So, yeah. although researchers knew that you could use photographic emulsions to detect radiation because the protons would interact with those silver crystal halides, um, the current methods for detecting these charged particles would often see the r- actual results. Because they the emulsions just weren't um, they weren't made to detect radiation, right? They were made to take photographs, and so yeah. they needed to be perfected. And yeah. in 1924 or so, knowing that Marietta was an expert in photographic methods, a scientist at her institute asked her if she wanted to work on improving that technology or finding a new method for detecting emitted. Protons. And so she began mm-hmm. to explore that. So, to do this, she would find different sources of radioactive decay, which is like, oh, great, <laughs> like just <laughs> I hanging know. out around a lot of radioactive decay. Um, and then she would expose photographic emulsion plates to the radiation, which would capture the movement of charged particles away from the nuclear reaction. Uh, then she would develop the photograph, the emulsion plate, and see the tracks par- par- that particles made as they interacted with the gel, with the crystals in the mm-hmm. gel. And so in some cases, if you looked at the photo, this would just look like dots of different sizes in a photo. Okay. Um, a lot of times it looks like a bunch of dots of the same size all in a line because like this particle is like moving hmm. in a straight line away. Okay. And sometimes those dots are like separated pretty far in the line. Other times all you can see is a straight line because the thing is moving so fast, the dots aren't separated. <laughs> the proton moves so fast. Yeah. And these different dots or lines will represent different types of radiation, sometimes the same type. And so this is what researchers wanted to know, like, is this a proton? Is this a different type of decay? Like, those types Mm -hmm. of things. So in an attempt to determine what types of particles she was observing and to learn more about those particles, Marietta worked with a local film production company to change the thickness of her photographic emulsions, to increase the concentration of the silver halide crystals... And a lot of other things, basically just testing out different types of emulsions to detect different types of radioactive decay. It's very cool. Yeah, it's really neat. And this allowed her to more accurately capture the effects of nuclear reactions such that she could distinguish tracks of different particles, like really, really Mm. fast particles, like high energy protons. And she could even measure gotcha. the distances between grains in the photos to see how energetic the protons were.
1: That's crazy. Yeah, that's uh, that's so cool that you can do that with those photographs.
0: Yeah, exactly. Like some of the chemistry of this is still like beyond me, but um, uh-huh. but yeah. So she was essentially just able to develop photos with high resolution in detecting nuclear particles. And this was like a game changer for the whole field, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, in 1932, which is the same year the neutron was discovered, she began collaborating with a PhD student at the Radium Institute, a woman named Hertha, or Hertha uh, Wambacher. Little did Marietta know, Hertha was secretly registered for the illegal nationalist party in Austria, which um, will unfortunately come into play a little bit later, but... Okay. Yes,
1: this is very crazy. <laughs> this is all crazy. Okay. It's about I don't to even a- know what... Hmm? Okay, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna strap in... Yeah. ...for the ride.
0: Okay. Uh, Hertha is a piece of shit.
1: So that's <laughs> the one
0: thing. Okay. I'm just gonna get that out there right now. Love so it. first, under Marietta's lead, which <laughs> all their research was under her lead because Hertha was a dummy, um, they determined okay. that they could use the proton tracks in photographic emulsions to determine the energies of the neutrons involved in the radiation they were detecting. Which is, it's okay. a lot, but they were, this made them, <laughs> this made these two women the first scientists to ever physically detect neutrons.
1: Oh. Yeah. Very cool.
0: Whereas it was kind of a theoretical uh, mm-hmm. concept before then. And so for this, they received a prestigious Austrian prize, the Ignaz Alibin lieben priest. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And then Marietta (laughs) had a brilliant idea. She said, I mean, she didn't literally say this, but she said, hey, let's try to capture the radiation coming from stars in the sky. (laughs) Uh huh. Uh, AKA cosmic rays. So, yes. Other researchers had been able to capture some aspects of cosmic radiation including the discovery of the positron in 1932. But capturing rare events or finer details of these subatomic cosmic particles would need new technologies, like Marietta Blau's photographic emulsions. So to record the very, very long tracks that, these, that cosmic ray high-energy photons would make, Uh, Marietta and Hertha took a bunch of their photographic emulsion plates to a cosmic ray research station that was positioned at 2300 meters on Hafalekgar Mountain. They left the plates up there for a few months. At first they found that the exposures were not stable enough to be left outside for so long and so they went back to the lab, went back to the the film production company, and continued fine-tuning their photographic emulsions. Uh, They made them thicker, they stacked the plates to capture longer rays. Eventually, in 1937, they set these plates out again for four months. And when they they got the plates back, they discovered something that no one had ever seen before. And this was a bunch of star-like shapes all across a bunch of their photographs. And these shapes would later be dubbed disintegration stars. And this is what she's most uh, famous for. So I'll try to describe what these look like. They're essentially patterns on their photos that consisted of 3 to 12 heavy proton tracks or dark lines all emanating from one point. Such that they kind of look mm-hmm. like a twinkling star pattern in the photograph, if that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so, to describe this, I was like, what do these look like? And so, what I thought of was when Pinocchio, do you know the movie
1: Pinocchio? Oh
0: yeah. <laughs> do you know when he's like wishing upon the star and the star becomes a fairy? Yes. Okay, before the star becomes a fairy, maybe this is only me, but it looks like that star. (laughs) Okay. Star. I don't like, or like a tree topper, like a Christmas tree topper. Uh Uh-huh. It kind of looks like that, like a dot with some, with just lines emanating from it. Does that make any sense? Yes, yes, it does. Yeah, okay. So people can look these up. There's lots of pictures of them. Um, Right, so like, why are these important? Well, what Marietta and Hertha had just, for the first time, captured was firm evidence of the disintegration of heavy nuclei, which is caused by super high-energy cosmic particles hitting the nuclei causing a bunch of protons to blast away from the nuclei all at the same time. Mm-hmm. And no one had ever physic- like, physically seen this or captured evidence of this ever before. And so um, knowing kind of the importance of their discovery, they quickly wrote up a publication and sent news of it to the journal Nature. Um... So, like I said, this was groundbreaking and researchers at the time knew that. The next mm-hmm. step then was to determine the relationship between atomic number and the size of their different of their photographic uh disintegration stars. So like if you have a higher atomic number, are there more protons like exploding mm-hmm. away after hit by a bunch of high energy rays or are the disintegrations bigger the tracks longer things like that so to i do have the, a question yeah yeah yeah
1: sorry i don't mean to interrupt no but, no um are these particles that are getting hit and then like exploding their protons out are those like in the atmosphere close to earth or are those really far away i'm just trying to figure out like where are the particles that are exploding in relationship to like earth
0: i honestly don't know i think it's okay close okay by. yeah
1: cuz i'm trying to figure out like are they close like way up yeah. in the a- like are they in the atmosphere are they in space
0: that's the thing that i couldn't quite figure out okay. is how they take these photos like I couldn't Mm -hmm. get a clear image in my head of where the radiation is versus where the literal photographic plate is. (laughs) Like, are they putting radioactive decaying things on the plate or just, you know, I think it's like feet away from the plate. Um, Okay. But at the same time, I'm like... I think it's the li- the radiation actually interacting with the silver crystals that form these tracks. So I think the disintegration mm-hmm. stars are reactions almost occurring on the plates. But I uh-huh. really don't know. Like, I could be totally okay. wrong about that. Okay. Yeah. Um, that, okay. to me, was not really something I could find. I tried Googling this, and I just was like... <laughs> <laughs> it's too much.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Especially no worries, no worries.
0: This technology has been like developed to be even more complicated. So trying gotcha. to understand it at its base at this point was like just there's nothing about it and I couldn't, you know, read their original papers mm-hmm. either. So, yeah. Uh, okay, let's see. So, So yeah, so they were like, okay, let's learn more about these stars. To do this, they wrapped emulsion plates, photographic emulsion plates, in different types of metallic foils and took them to be exposed at different elevations, even going so far as to try to get some of these plates into weather balloons. So that's like they're trying to get higher into the atmosphere to capture more of these reactions. Um, Mm -hmm. Which I, yeah, I assume are just occurring in the atmosphere, but more likely to occur the closer you are to, like, the source of the cosmic radiation, which Mm -hmm. is stars that are very far away. So that's why I'm like, how (laughs) is, like, going on a mountain make it so much better? I'm not quite sure, but it must have to do with how these rays interact with our atmosphere and, like... Mm -hmm. The further you are into the atmosphere, probably like the less strong those rays are. Um, and so famous or more strong because isn't
1: like, isn't there Mm -hmm. really high UV radiation when you're on top of a mountain? Like,
0: right, right, that's what I I mean. Like, okay, yeah, as they travel like lower or towards the earth, they'll become less. Uh, gotcha, Yeah, 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 okay. So famous physicists and chemists like Heisenberg and Raman wanted the plates made by Marietta Blau and Hertha Wambacher. Like, this was becoming a huge thing. Um, everyone wanted these to, to measure things that they were measuring. And a lot of people say that uh, Marietta and Hertha's discovery truly launched the field of particle physics. And cool. so... Yeah, it was a really exciting moment in time <laughs> that would very unfortunately remain only a moment in time for Marietta. Oh, um no. And I will say she's... she. I'm just going to say she's safe. Like, she was safe, like Lisa okay. Meitner. But it just... All this shit just, like, disrupted what could have been mm-hmm. an even a good Like, a strong scientific... Mm-hmm. Yeah, hmm Um, okay, so this is because it was, it's very frustrating, (laughs) I'll say that. I, like, almost, I was, like, upset reading it. Um Yeah. Okay, so this is because it was 1937, and the Nazis were gaining Uh power, not only in Germany, but also in nearby countries, like Austria. Hitler was from Austria. Um... And this included multiple researchers within the Radium Institute, just like Hertha. Mm -hmm. Um, Okay. And so in Vienna, despite the Nationalist Party being technically illegal, lots of people were part of it, even kind of not so secretly, but not officially either, because you could be arrested in the 30s, I think, uh, for being a part of that party.
1: So is Um, the Nationalist Party Hitler's party? The Nationalist Party is or like
0: it's like a neo Nazi party in the yes. Uh It's a typically nationalism is kind of associated with like white supremacy. It just Yeah. The often those ideas get conflated. Though there Mm -hmm. were people who like weren't outwardly anti Semitic that were part of the Nationalist Party, but At some point, it's like you are anti Semitic if you're supporting this party. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, yeah.
1: Yeah. If you know, like, if so many people in this group are anti Semitic and doing things that are anti Semitic, then you being a part of it. Yeah. By association means that you condone. You're, you, um, not condone. Yes. Condone.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Essentially. Yeah. Um, which honestly just goes to show how normal hate groups can seem to the public when even smart leading scientists are part of a part this party, you know? Yeah. Um, so this came to a head. So I think for some time Marietta Blau knew that Hertha was a neo-Nazi. But what I <laughs> learned in from some interviews was that she kind of just was like, let's just keep working like as long as I can keep working, it doesn't matter. or like I, I don't know. I mean, she must have been personally conflicted, but just so focused on research that she didn't really pay it much mind.
1: However, well, I also wonder if she was not in the position to like, yes. like probably causing yes. a stink about it was gonna backfire on her.
0: Very true. but what's it's just weird to me that she ever took Hertha on as a student. Like, well, I'll talk more about Mm, this in mm -hmm. a second. Um, So, this came to a head within the Institute when one of these neo Nazi researchers, his last name is Stutter, he asked Marietta to put her name second on her publication with Hertha, even though they had, he he said they had contributed equally to the work. So, technically, the name should be alphabetical Blau, then Wombacher. So Marietta's mm-hmm. name should be first. Um, however, to say that they contributed equal, equally was an overstatement, as Hertha Wambacher was a dumb lady that kept failing upward <laughs> due to her Aryan heritage. <laughs> Which is not oh. me. I'm not saying that. Other people, other researchers at the time that knew them have said this. So... In an interview, scientist Leopold Halpern says that Hertha had failed many of her exams at the Institute. She was not a good student, and she was just lucky that Marietta was the kind of person that wanted to help other women succeed. Uh Um, In addition, Hertha was sleeping with this professor who was married, this neo-Nazi stutter man. Um, who had asked Marietta to put Hertha's name first in the paper.
1: She's a oh, There's for- a lot wrong with that yeah. situation.
0: So um, when people at the Institute were later asked, when researchers at the Institute were later asked about Hertha and Marietta's contributions to the disintegration star work, one of them literally said, what are you talking about? Everybody knows that Blau did all the work and Wambacher was just a love relation to Stetter, who was a real Nazi. <laughs> God. So, anyway. Wow. Um, <laughs> yeah, so things were getting really weird at the Institute by 1937. Yeah, sounds Like, what she could ignore weird. for a few years, she was not quite so able to ignore any longer. Um, She ended up... It would have been bad even
1: minus the Nazi stuff. Right. It's just... Yeah, it's... (laughs) Ugh. She ended up putting her name first
0: on this paper, thankfully. And, you know, fortunately for her, there were other researchers at the Institute and outside of the Institute that were not neo-Nazis and that stood up for her. Um Unfortunately, it was clear that tensions were rising in a way that would could eventually be dangerous for Marietta Blau. And so th- mm-hmm. these same friends began looking for opportunities for her outside of Vienna. Um, yeah. though most of them thought it would only be temporary until drama or political tensions died down, um, which we all know, you know, it was not, Quite it was way more serious than that. Um yeah. word so word was getting around too to other institutions about Marietta's treatment by Hertha and the other uh Nazis at the radium institution. Albert Einstein himself started looking for positions for Marietta. Um, like he was invested in her success in her career. Eventually, she took a position found by another friend, Ellen Gledish Gladi- Gladi- in Oslo. But uh, so Marietta very luckily left Austria on March twelfth, nineteen thirty eight, which was the same day of the Anschluss, uh, which was mm. the annexation by Austria of Austria by the German Reich and she could literally see german troops pouring across the border into austria on her train ride out of the country which
1: oh my god
0: yeah <laughs> it's really just so intense and sad um
1: this should be a now this should be a movie right there's like a it's there's crazy. romance and a love affair like clearly like villains scientific yeah. like awesome science right trains
0: yeah and it's really, really crazy. And, ugh, these people are just so terrible. Um, <laughs> so, from there, the neo-Nazis took over the Radium Institute, so Stutter became the boss, and Hertha Wambacher began publishing work that she and Blau had done together without any credit to Marietta Blau, uh, because she's a piece of shit, like I said. <laughs> Uh, but luckily in some ways not in most ways but in some ways many researchers outside of the institute fortunately knew that this was not her work and that it was insane Mm -hmm. Uh, they recognized Hertha for who she was and they attempted to support Marietta in any way they could Um, you know she had this temporary position in, in Norway but Norway had a cap on how many refugees they were allowing. And so she couldn't find a permanent position or uh, she couldn't stay there permanently. And so that's when um, Albert Einstein found her a position as a lecturer at a university in Mexico, which was kind of a strange... Place like Mexico at the time was not a big nuclear physics research center <laughs> uh-huh. of the world, you know. But I think it was like just a place where a lot of um elite like s- people in society were going into exile, like from the Nazis, like leaving Europe, trying to get to America. It was a lot harder to get to America, you could get to mm-hmm. Mexico very quickly. Um, and yeah. so I think that's how he found her this position there, and and why he was even looking there.
1: Um, didn't Einstein help with Lisa Lisa Meitner too? Like he not might have. like she went to other people's universities, but I thought he was like advocating and trying to help. But I, I think know so. he did that for someone else. I think it's Lisa Meitner, but it might I might be wrong.
0: Yeah, I couldn't quite remember, but there are like so many parallels between. Mm -hmm. Marietta Blau and Lee Smightner it's just really like wow Um, so yeah so people are looking for permanent positions for her um, but supporting her fully would prove difficult purely because of feasibility issues like she just couldn't complete the research she was doing in Europe and Mexico where she now was um although she was she did join a group of other elite exiles including people like leon trotsky the the marxist (laughs) like guy and leon trotsky's Mm -hmm. assassin apparently um
1: she knew both (laughs) of them and she what a great group
0: yeah she was there when he was assassinated which was pretty crazy um, oh so she taught physics, and in her free time, she studied the radioactivity of local soils. So she just had that kind of research mind ingrained in her and wanted to do something. Yeah. Um, Albert Einstein, he continued to search for better, you know, more research-focused positions for her. Eventually, he, he helped her find a job in 1944 at the Canadian... Radium and Uranium Corporation, where she worked for a few years. During this time, she published a paper describing one of the first ever scintillation counters, which is an instrument used to detect radiation. Um, Mm -hmm. Though this was rudimentary, it inspired the creation of higher-tech scintillation counters. And she she couldn't continue with this work because... Uh, she was working in a for profit industry at that time, but nevertheless, it was that paper itself was very influential. Uh, she would continue publishing works on radiation technology as it relates to mining, which was basically her job at the time for quite a few years. Then in 1948, and this is now 10 years after her development. Of photographic emulsions for nuclear decay and the discovery of disintegration stars, she finally secured an independent research position with the U.S. Atomic Energy Commission.
1: Did they pay her?
0: Yes. Yay! (laughs) (laughs) Like ten years. Like I can't even imagine your whole life being uprooted by. You know a genocidal maniac, mm-hmm. and then still just wanting to study physics and like <laughs> I don't know yeah. how, how they did this, yeah, um so let's see part of, by that time, particle physics, the field she had helped launch, had recently expanded and grown you know during her time away from that field and this, you know, this was World War II when the first nuclear bombs were designed and created. Yep. So physics, mm. nuclear science, they were super competitive and and fast paced at that time, right? Yeah. Um, she she did catch up pretty quickly though, as photographic emulsions were still crucial for recording nuclear disintegrations, and she helped in implementing that technology in new labs and. Re- in refining it to discover new particles. So, for example, at Brookhaven National Laboratory, where she was now working, Marietta became part of the lab that used emulsions to identify multiple new subatomic particles like K-mesons. <laughs> Which K-mesons? I yeah, like, I... They, I think, like, someone had discovered the meson, too, in this time. And I was like, I don't even know what a meson is.
1: <laughs> no you idea. Know? Absolutely none.
0: Right? Like, I never learned about mesons in school. Only protons nope. and neutrons and whatever. Um, And here she is, you know, discovering K mesons. I was like, what is a K meson? <laughs> I don't know. I didn't look it up. It's, you know, we're getting okay. long here. Yeah. Um. They also developed new tools for measuring different ionization p- parameters of nuclear em- emissions. Um, she developed a semi-automatic device for analyzing events in nuclear emulsions. You know, among many many other discoveries during this time. Um, so mm-hmm. she published a lot of papers during the next. 10 or so years and while nice she may not have been you know the star that broke out on the scene in 1938. Um, she was yeah. still well respected in the mm-hmm. physics community and she was still pretty prolific.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: uh, a lot of these dis- the dis- her discoveries at this time are very important to her field, but they're very nuanced and there's so many of them that I can't I'm just not describing them all. Um, yeah, a lot of them are way over my head. But if you're a physics nerd, you can read uh, the Pearl paper that I will cite. It is 44 pages long and contains a detailed record of all of Marietta Blau's work post World War II. <laughs> so that's cool.
1: Yeah, it's a cool so, thing to exist. Yeah, exactly
0: because for a very long time she was kind of forgotten to history so it's really cool that a lot of people I think maybe starting in like the 90s were like oh Mm -hmm. who was this woman who contributed so much to the field of particle physics and so went back to like figure out her biography and to look at her how she contributed to the field um so yeah, he gets into a lot of details in that paper on all the new devices she helped create and on how important her work was, you know, kind of within that context of the field. So definitely mm-hmm. read that if you love physics. <laughs> I like started it and I was like, this is too much. <laughs> I can't. Yeah, There's like no, mathematical equations Ooh. in it. I'm like, no, I can't. <laughs> okay. In 1950, Erwin Schrödinger, who is the Schrödinger, like the cat, the guy with the cat in the box, you know, <laughs> yep, that yep. guy, right?
1: I'm familiar with. I am familiar with the man with the cat in the box.
0: He nominated Marietta and her former dumbass Nazi colleague Hertha, <laughs> for the Nobel Prize in Physics. Nice. Um, so. You know, why this year? Well, this was actually the year another person, Cecil F. Powell, was awarded the Nobel Prize in Physics for his discovery of mesons using a scaled-up version of Blau and Wambacher's photographic emulsions technique. Hmm. So Schrodinger said, if Powell is going to receive the award, so should Blau and Wambacher. Um, yeah. Because you know, it should be formally recognized that they created this technology that he then that he used. used. Yeah, yeah.
1: Um, and then she created she she found K mesons, right? Yeah, right? yeah. But this was he had found the mesons
0: like before she found the K mesons.
1: No, I know, but like, oh, yeah, you combine yeah, yeah. her her the fact that she did the technology that he needed to find mesons, and then she also found the k mesons,
0: right well here's what's crazy um <laughs> so the researcher who is in charge of like i guess there's people who investigate the nominations and like mm-hmm. they write a report that's like here's why they deserve it or don't okay and it's very yep. political in a way I didn't really understand, but that Ruth Simes goes into a lot on, in her article that like made me very mad. Um, the researcher <laughs> in charge of this nomination, Axel E. Lind, incorrectly attributed her- Marietta and Hertha's work to the filmmaker um, that they what? collaborated with. Yes, he said. But that, don't
1: isn't there a paper that says who, that they did it? Like,
0: it's, it's so crazy. So this guy was like, well, actually, like, these, it's like saying Kodak made the photo, the film, so the photo they took is owned by Kodak, and actually, they're the creative ones. Or, like, you know what I mean? Like. Yeah. It was like, okay, so while the contribution of this, like, photography company and their f- While that, like, collaboration was crucial to the production of the photographic emulsions, it was, like, Marietta herself that creatively designed those emulsions. And then they would produce them for her. You know what I mean?
1: And then she would test it and do the science.
0: Yeah. Yes. Like, she was the scientist, and they were just creating things for her, you know? Yeah. It's insane. Um, Oh, um, boy. Yeah. It's... (laughs) <laughs> it's so frustrating. Okay, so along with saying that this, like... Yeah, so he's saying this film production company was, like, contributed as much as, like, Marietta and Hertha, so why aren't they part of the nominee? Like, it's so dumb. Um, That's
1: then, infuriating.
0: Yeah, he also cited other works in that incorrectly stated that others had had the ideas for the photographic emulsions first, um, when in reality that was not true in those false, like, not accusations, but those falsities essentially had arisen out of some really weird papers that Hertha wrote after betraying Mm. Marietta. So Hertha published, like, five or six papers after they, like you know, made Marietta leave the country. And in those papers, she's, like, tries to erase Marietta's influence at all in any of this work by even saying, like, other people told her how to do this.
1: Oh, my God.
0: Yeah. And so this guy is using those papers to say, actually, Marietta's influence was not that big.
1: Maybe we shouldn't take neo-Nazi's words for I it. I know, right? Like, Even if they're scientists. Sorry. Hot take, but...
0: <laughs> it's like, there's just so many frustrating things in all of this. Um, let's see. And what's weird is he just essentially looked for any reason not to let them share the Nobel Prize with Powell, which was not unprecedented at that time for yeah, people to share Nobel Prize, like prizes. a common... Yeah.
1: Sounds like this guy sucks too. So, and (laughs) Cecil Powell,
0: like, certainly contributed to the field in numerous ways. Like, he was not undeserving of the prize Mm -hmm. because he had really scaled up this technology and made it widely available to other researchers. Like, his influence was just as large. But he couldn't have done this without their discoveries, you know? Yeah. Um. So another thing that Lynn pointed to a lot in his uh his report on why Marietta and Wambacher didn't deserve the Nobel was Marietta's lack of research activity following her discovery.
1: Oh no!
0: <laughs> yeah, no. I forgot about that part, which just also made me really mad.
1: Fuck. That.
0: She was in exile from the Nazis. (laughs) Like, and then she was doing research, and it just wasn't... It's just so, so frustrating. Um.
1: Oh, that's such BS.
0: Yeah. Like, you know who didn't do his research? This guy, Axel E. Lynn. He did not, like, put any (laughs) time into figuring out what Marietta had done. He just you know, took an easy route to be like, no, 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 let's not. So, anyway. Um, so, like we've, like, pointed to a couple times, this is a very similar story to Lise Smeitner, who mm-hmm. also, I think, was nominated for the Nobel, and, like, they used crazy reasons not to give it to her, like when her lack <sighs> of research activity after fleeing the Nazis. um. And, I'm not and happy. and I guess one piece of good news. I don't know. Uh, people might get <laughs> yeah. mad at me saying this. Uh, Hertha Wambacher died in 1950 <laughs> at the age of 47 from breast cancer. I don't know.
1: Oh man. So. Yeah, I thought that was about to to happen. I mean, I don't wish <laughs> I don't wish death upon anyone. Right, but but it's just
0: like she was bad. I don't. Know. Anyway. I'm not going to go any (laughs) further into how I feel about that. She had been teaching at the University of Vienna from 1934 to 1945, um, at which time she was removed when the Nazi party fell and World War II ended. I think she tried to flee Vienna, but was caught and returned, and then she was sick and, yeah... Her, she didn't, she never went on to do anything, like, great, you know? She just was, like, this bad person who (laughs) had a bad ending, whatever. She definitely didn't deserve the Nobel Prize, so at least there's that. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. In 1955, Marietta accepted a position as a professor at the University of Miami, where she founded a oh. department of particle physics and trained many important researchers, and completed a lot of great work. Um, however, despite being only six years old, her health was declining rapidly due to the radiation she had endured throughout much of her research. Because of this, she retired in 1960 and moved back to Vienna to get a cataract surgery that she could not afford while living in the US. And upon her return, she sought out a position at the Radium Institute, which I found so su- surprising. Um, but her her close her then close which friend, one
1: the Vienna one
0: yeah the one in Vienna okay that she was okay. like yeah had to flee. Um, yeah. Her f- former colleague Berta Karlik had become a- the leader of the institute, though. And this, there's a lot going on here that I'm not going to get much into. Um, however supportive Karlik was, it really wasn't enough. So despite being a returned refugee to Austria, Marietta did not receive payment for her work upon her return to the Radium Institute. And she never what? received any restitution or acknowledgement from the Institute for how she was treated before oh. and after World War II. So I don't really know why she returned. It's I think she just had to be back in Vienna and wanted to do research. And that's why she <laughs> went there at all, you know? Yeah. So she she did do some research with them and advised some students, but was still constantly battling health issues. In 1962, she received the Erwin Schrodinger Prize from the Austrian Academy of Sciences, um, though for some reason they would not let her become a member of the Academy. Like, come on. Of course like, not. Yeah.
1: You can in win total. awards, but you can't hang out.
0: Yeah. Um. Let's see. In total, she was nominated three times for the Nobel Prize. Uh, another uh. time by Schrodinger and another time by another guy. But it never went anywhere, which is really sad. But, let's see. Um, and in 1970, she... Uh, passed away from lung cancer which is just must have must have been pretty hard way to end her life um there's yeah definitely a lot of frustrations but I think the idea that she wasn't active in her later years as a researcher is just kind of incorrect and I hope like yeah Yeah, I'm just so glad at the at all these people who these researchers who are able to like figure out how she contributed to the field, even more Mm -hmm. so than her, her kind of like star discovery and everything. So yeah, yeah, a lot of frustrating things in Marietta Blau's life, but that's her story. My blood pressure
1: (laughs) hasn't gotten this high for one of our stories in a while.
0: I know. I was not expecting this. I don't know what I thought, like, I've heard her name many times and the lists that we go through, but, uh, yeah, I was really not quite expecting this much drama in the story. Man. Yeah.
1: That's... Sucks. She seems <laughs> great, but that yeah, sucks. <laughs> yeah, I mean... I just think, that... like, it's, I think it's also really, um, not ironic, but fitting in some twisted horrible way that the first like field science field that we get that's really dominated by women is the one where we just give everyone cancer you know it just seems like yeah that would be how it would go down
0: they don't receive pay but they do receive cancer cancer
1: yeah (laughs) though and then they don't get acknowledged for their work
0: Mm mm-hmm I mean, yeah. I think men Anyways. died to men that did, you know, like... Uh, well, the podcast died.
1: podcast isn't about them!
0: <laughs> I'm just saying, <laughs> yeah, I know what you mean. It's, it's pretty... It is kind of, like, insane that all these women, yeah, joined the field of radiology during a time when no one quite understood that radiology will kill you. <laughs> uh, yeah. But, yeah... So, the Blau up. and the discovery of disintegration stars and many other things.
1: That was very cool. I'm very angry. <laughs> no, I was like so frustrated. Story. Yeah. Um, <sighs> okay. Yeah. Well, <laughs> shall we? Uh, shall we work, work, and mo- minds all yeah. happy. Ha-
0: yeah, happier. give us some like good news. Where, where,
1: where, 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 Alright, so today, um, this is our section where we give shout outs to badass ladies making her story today. Mm-hmm. And my shout out's gonna go to Grazia Cassetta, uh, who's a master's student at the Universita Università uh di Pisa in Pisa, Italy, uh, oh. as well as her advisor, Doctor Elisabetta Pelagi, Um For their paper that came out in Animal Behavior last week, entitled, quote, Yawn Contagion Promotes Motor Synchrony in Wild Lions.
0: (gasps) Wow.
1: Okay, okay. Yeah. Okay. So in this paper, um, the authors filmed groups of lions in the Greater Makalali Private Game Reserve in South Africa. Hmm. And they'd been working there for a while researching hyenas. And while they were there, they had noticed that the lions um, generally, you know, they, they see the lion packs a lot while they're studying hyenas. And they noticed that the lions appeared to have contagious yawning like humans do and like a variety of other mammals do.
0: Yeah, yeah. Like when I uh, see and someone an- yawning, I want to yawn. Like, I yawn. Yeah, exactly. And then like, Which is like, why like such am I a. yawning?
1: Yeah. Yawning is one of those weird, mysterious behaviors. Yeah. Uh, so, and there are a number of hypotheses about the function of yawning. So, right. some of it is like um, as a way for organisms to help themselves wake up and get more alert because I guess it changes like um, your ability to get oxygen and have blood mm-hmm. pump through your brain. So, it can often you'll see it when an organism goes from like one behavior to another. So like sitting to sleeping or sleeping to walking or something like that. Yeah. Right. Right. And so they essentially set up a bunch of, they, they filmed a couple prides of lions over a couple months period of time during the day and during the night. Um, and then Went back over that footage and monitored like what the individuals were actually doing over time.
0: Ooh, okay, so it's like
1: very non-invasive, yeah, way to kind of look at the behavior and yawning of these lions.
0: I mean, look, how would you? I don't think anybody Let's wants not... to get close to a pack of lions. No, either. no, like looking in their mouths while they're yawning. Like,
1: oh, what's like. <laughs>
0: lose your head
1: yeah non-invasive is a good strategy
0: yeah yeah yeah.
1: so the first thing they found was that yawning occurred often when organisms change their activity state for instance from resting to moving so that kind of goes along with this hypothesis um but there's another hypothesis that's the idea that yawning in some social organisms can help synchronize individuals behavior and essentially like get them all on the same page Okay,. Uh-huh. And so they were also interested to see if if one org, if there was actual um, contagious yawning and whether or not that caused the second um, lion to then follow the behaviors of the first lion that yawned.
0: Right, okay.
1: So after monitoring all their footage, they found that um, if a lion, that saw another member of the pride yawn, they were 139 times as likely to yawn themselves in the next Whoa. three minutes.
0: Oh my gosh.
1: Suggesting, like, there's definitely contagious yawning going on. Yeah. And then, additionally, if that first lion changed its state from, like, resting to walking, then the second lion was 11 times more likely to mirror that behavior and follow Whoa. that lion. That's crazy. And so essentially what you would find, like often what they were finding was one lion would yawn, the second lion would yawn, the first lion would get up and then do something, and that second lion would then do the exact same thing and mirror them.
0: Oh my gosh.
1: And so this work provides some of the first evidence for the idea that yawning can function as essentially a reliable indicator of a change in activity state that can help synchronize those group behaviors. So if one line gets up it yawns, it's like, okay, we're doing something different. Yeah. And then the other line will yawn and then do the same thing. And it's like, okay, we're all going hunting or we're all getting up um, or something like that. So uh, getting on the same page can be really important for social aspects or for social species that hunt, Mm -hmm. and rear offspring cooperatively so this may be this reliable signal to get everybody on the same page that something's changing Mm -hmm. yeah so that's um it was like a really interesting study and like yawning i just find so fascinating yeah especially contagious yawning um Just you talking
0: about this has made me want to yawn. Like, I had a craving to yawn. Yeah, it's weird.
1: It's very strange. And, like, I know that in dogs, yawn... Mm -hmm. So, there's another hypothesis that yawning can indicate, like, arousal or stress. Oh. Um, And so, you'll often see in some organisms that they'll yawn under stressful circumstances or when they're waiting for food. Mm Mm-hmm. Um... Things like that, at, right Aww. after a conflict, yeah. And I know in dogs, like it's a reliable signal that your dog is stressed if they yawn. Aww. So like, Luna yawns a lot when like we're getting up to leave the house.
0: <laughs> She's like, oh, like, yeah. I'm gonna start watching our kittens to see if they so social-
1: Yeah, I don't, I don't know if it's a similar thing in in the cats. Oh, you should see. Maybe the cats have the same thing as the lions. Yeah, yeah. Look for See if one cat, little kitty yawns, the and yawns. then another one. Mm-hmm. Man, you could do a whole follow-up study. Because <laughs> they're all enclosed, where you just yeah. monitor when, if one yawns, when the next one yawns, if they then change their activity state.
0: Mm-hmm. I mean, they didn't need lying to go to lying down Africa. To, they could have done this in bedroom. Yeah,
1: they could have come, the come to your house. Bedroom. <laughs> 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 but, you know, kittens
0: are different, obviously.
1: Yeah, no, I don't, they're not um, as they're much, they're more so solo. But
0: Yeah, but cats are more solo-ish, but yeah. they're not like hunting together, like, you know, it's not mm-hmm. like lion packs. <laughs> no.
1: But yeah, so that's my uh, shout out to that's Grazia really cool. Cassetta like and Dr. Yeah. Iza- Elisabetta uh, Pelagi.
0: Nice, like, palate cleanser, you know? Yeah, Just exactly. thinking about cute lions yawning and Stretching, and
1: do it, mirroring cute. their activity. Being yeah. like I'm, I'm thinking of like synchronized lion swimming. <laughs> you know,
0: that's adorable.
1: They definitely <laughs> would
0: have swim caps on for their beautiful oh, hair. You oh, for know? their
1: big, for their big old manes.
0: Yeah, like a swim cap that went all the way around their heads, like a swim cap
1: donut. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love that.
0: Good stuff
1: yeah all right well uh <laughs> that's all we've got for today thanks everyone for tuning in i, I it's been a um, emotional roller coaster this episode oh, yeah. <laughs> it really truly truly has i think i've cursed more in this episode than uh usual i know
0: same yeah sorry everyone <sighs>
1: sorry but sometimes sorry. you gotta do it yeah but yeah thanks everybody for listening um and if you like the show please share it with a friend Talk about it on Twitter. Engage with us. We love hearing um, from our listeners. Yeah, and just knowing that people are enjoying it and learning something new. Also, I want to thank um, Caitlin Friesen for our awesome art and Artichoke for our theme music. And as always, you can go stimulate yourself. Stimulate yourself. Wow, we did that so well. <laughs> <laughs> Woo hoo!